So good afternoon, good morning, welcome. I'm Paula Hillard and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology and this is our JPEG podcast. Hi, I'm Claire Roden. I'm an adolescent medicine physician and I am a co-host of the JPEG podcast and uh, so excited to be here and talk about the February edition of the journal. All right, so before we do that, just our little intro. Um, the book that we had said we were going to talk about is Graceland at Last by Margaret Renkel, R-E-N-K-L. And the subtitle of the book is Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. I chose this book. This was not Claire's choice. This was my choice. And I chose it for a couple of reasons. I chose it because it's beautifully written and came very well recommended to me. So it's a series of essays. Uh, Margaret Renkel is a, a regular uh, op-ed writer for the New York Times and, and some of these pieces, uh, they're short essays. So beautifully written. And, um, you know, I think if you talk to writers, they will often say that a short story or a short essay is in some ways more difficult to craft and write than a novel because you have to encapsulate things. And I just think these are so lovely in the way that they are written. But also, I'm a Tennessean, and I have really complicated feelings about growing up in the South and about the South. This author really enthusiastically owns her adopted hometown of Nashville. And the other link for us is we're going to Nashville for our NASPAG annual clinical research meeting. And so... I thought that in some ways that it would be an introduction to Nashville and, and maybe dispelling some prejudices and thoughts that people have about the South and preconceptions. So, so I like it for that reason. And it's just, it's also just little nice short tidbits that you can read just a couple of essays at a time. And one of the things I like to do with books that I really love to read is to uh, read them slowly, uh, a little bit at the time and make them make them last a little longer. So I really love this book. So I'm from Nashville. So I will be staying with my parents for the conference. And I'm so excited about it. Um, you will notice my distinct lack of Tennessee accent. Um, I do appreciate that it's sort of a love letter to my, my actual hometown. Um, it's a little bittersweet for me because a lot of the book does tend to be about how much the city has changed over the last couple of decades. So the city that I grew up in is not the city that we're going to for our conference, even though we are going to be like a stone's throw from my high school. So it's a little bittersweet in that capacity. Uh, some of the things that I did really enjoy about my childhood and adolescence, though, those are still around at some of those restaurants are, and I can help you find some really good hot chicken if that's your thing. <laughs> Sounds good. You can't go home again. That's something I think we all, in some, it, there, the metaphorical sense, I'm glad you're going to your parents' home. I, well, I, it's I, not I, the I, home I grew up in. My parents downsized. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, so yes, I am not going to my old home. So anyway, I hope that folks might want to pick that up and, and they can pick it up between now and the, and the meeting and, and have a look at, at Nashville and some behind the scenes. So. I enjoyed it. She talks about the environment and, and how global warming is really impacting you, even in your backyard. 
um, pretty progressive politics, things that if you have some prejudices about the South, you might not know exist in the South, but they do. Uh, do you want to mention, Claire, the, the book that you've chosen for next our next podcast? Okay, yes, I do. So I have chosen um, a work of fiction, which I where there is a giant Pacific octopus who is a remarkably bright creature that she forms a sort of weird relationship with after she finds the octopus having escaped from his tank to eat some leftovers out of the trash, which my understanding is that giant Pacific octopi actually do that when they're in captivity, like they don't want to stay in their tanks. The audiobook is really endearing, like the person who voices the octopus is an excellent voice actor. Um, and I'm finding the story very engaging. Well-reasoned and well-presented. So I would encourage the surgeons or those of you who take care of individuals with CAH and DSDs uh, to take a look. I really enjoyed this guest editorial. I thought it was very astute. It was really well-written, especially for something so concise. I really appreciated the analysis and the perspective. Um, as an adolescent medicine physician who I, I don't do surgery, I do not cut people open. That is that is for someone else to do, like Paula, maybe, not me. If the surgeon thinks the genitals look abnormal, you're probably going to get surgery. But also situating that very much within, is that even the right metric to use? You know, I thought that was very sharp. Um, I certainly provide care to people who come to me, usually for gender care, who also have clitoromegaly. And they have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, a lot of them have pain left over from interventions they had in childhood that they can't describe because they were children. Um, and I also had some parallels with this for um, my friends in, from my friends in family planning who hate call for regular OBGYN and really struggle with the idea of doing a circumcision. So in my hospital system, newborn circumcisions are performed by OBGYNs. I find some nice parallels between this editorial and that mindset when all of these are things that I don't do. So I'm just like thinking about it and think it's interesting. So that takes me back to my residency in 1977 when I was a first year resident and we did circumcisions and we started declining to perform them on that same basis. So we're still talking about that issue of consent. Um, and at what, who gives consent and for a procedure that may or may not be medically indicated. Mm -hmm. And that's another issue on circumcision that we could talk about for a long time, whether or not there's a medical indication. But at any rate, take a look at the guest editorial. I think it's great. There also are two reviews in this issue. Claire, you want to talk about the first one? Yes, I wanted to highlight the pediatric and adolescent breast conditions um, manuscript that I just I just thought it was great. This edition came out during a week when I had three referrals for abnormal breast stuff in teenagers uh, and young adults, one of which included a 21 year old who had been referred for a mammogram. So I wanted to highlight this review as very timely. And um, also not recommending a mammogram like at all ever in our patient population because it is not a useful study. Imaging of choice first line generally is going to be an ultrasound, which they discuss at length. And I think it was wonderful. All making sense because of the really the the anatomy and, and 
um, the the breast architecture being just much more dense in young women and thus harder to read a mammogram and so ultrasound is indicated. So yes, they make that point very nicely. And then the review that I enjoyed was on tattoos and piercings in female adolescents and young adults. And um, I think that particularly folks in adolescent medicine may see this a little more than we do in gynecology, but we do when we see, when we do genital exams, genital piercings, nipple piercings and such. And one of the reasons I really like this article is that there are some lovely listings of references and online websites for both patients and clinicians. So it's it's a lovely list, uh, many of which I was not aware of. Um, and so I, I think it's a useful reference, um, something that people can look at and refer to, and thus a, a useful review from JPEG. Yeah, this is definitely one of those topics where um, I get way more questions from patients than I ever got teaching in med school. So I am grateful for the existence of this review. So sure, I will mention one of the articles and, and one of the joys and fun of being the editor-in-chief is I get to read every every submission. So I get to read about things that I didn't know before. I get to, to see it first, uh, so to speak. And so the, the article that I'm referring to, the submission is on establishing an association between polycystic ovarian syndrome and pilonidal disease in adolescent females. Claire tells me that she was well aware of this association. And I said, hmm, I bet that's because you take care of some uh, individuals with naturally more testosterone than I do. I don't take care of boys at all. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So oh, yeah. I hadn't thought that much about if you got more hair, you might be more likely to get pilonidal disease. Um, so it's one of those duh things to clear in adolescent medicine. But to me in gynecology, I had not made that association. So I'm glad to have it pointed out to me and wanted to include it because there may be others who were not aware of that association. So um, not earth shattering, but good to know. Good I'm not know. sure if I if I knew it or it was one of those things that's like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. You have too many oh. androgens. Yeah. So I don't know if it's like this is this follows logically or like at some point somebody taught this to me or I read it somewhere. But more it information is helpful. Yeah, it makes sense. I wanted to highlight um, healthcare and adoption service experiences of people who place children for adoption during adolescence, a qualitative study. The reason I wanted to highlight this is one, because it's a very interesting study and everyone should read it. Two, because it is one of a very tiny, tiny number of studies that vigorously and systematically studies adoption, the practice of adoption. So there, I am aware of only one other high quality study, the Turnaway study, that looks at the decision to end a pregnancy with adoption. So this is only the second study that I've seen on this topic. This is the first qualitative study I've seen on this topic. And I think for the way that they approach the question of like, how do people feel about this? A qualitative study is very appropriate. I think there's a couple things to keep in mind, which is that all of the adoptions occurred in a pre-Dobbs era. Um, so when adoption was a more freely undertaken endeavor than it might be currently, 
ugh, I don't know how else to say it, but that that's that's a thing. And most of the most of the people had some time. Most of the participants had some time between when the adoption occurred and when they were being interviewed. Although uh, some of them were still on the young end, like could still be my patients, you know, in their early twenties. So I thought that this was a really illuminating article because it sort of goes into how people feel about the process, how they made their decisions, some positive experiences that people had that might actually just be like good to, for everyone to have access to, like more social support. And then some negative experiences that I was horrified to read about, but um, it's a really good manuscript. Thank you. I agree. Um, I, th th we don't read much about it. Um, we certain we do think about it when we talk to individuals with an unplanned pregnancy and their options are continuing the pregnancy and parenting a baby or or uh, placing baby for adoption or having a an abortion. But we don't we don't. Um, often think about what the consequences of adoption might be. So so I agree. In terms of our keeping in mind uh, PEG globally, and the letter to the editor is on the flood crisis in Pakistan and the need for protection of young girls against gender-based violence. And I think the title says it all. They are highlighting that with these natural disasters, and I think about Turkey and Syria and the refugee camps and people displaced from their homes, that girls and women uh, suffer inordinately and, and disproportionately with natural disasters and in other crises uh, situations. So things to keep in mind about the health of, of uh, girls and teens internationally. It's a great letter. It is also a difficult letter. It's a great but difficult letter. The other thing on that on that note, the uh, slightly less difficult conversation that I wanted to bring up um, in case report that I thought was kind of fun was the use of natural substances for menstrual hygiene, a case report of an embedded vaginal sea sponge. I, I think probably the majority of my referrals are for people who have periods that are for some reason awful, like whatever, whatever metric of awful plus period, that's why you're seeing me. I've had to sort of change my education with my residents because I also give them the resident education about um, menstrual management and hygiene and period problems and all that kind of stuff about most of the data that we have for defining if someone has legit menorrhagia is looking at pads and tampons and it doesn't include things like menstrual underwear or cups or certainly not sponges. So this was a this was a fun one, a reminder for me that there's there's no limit to human ingenuity. I I agree. I agree. So the, my spiel about yeah. tampons, mothers often ask me about tampons. Girls usually don't, although they may have questions about it. And I, you know, I certainly am open to getting questions about it. But I've taken out enough retained tampons trying not to breathe because that stench is, is pretty bad. Um, but an exam in which you remove a, a retained tampon. And so my spiel to my patients about using tampons is don't forget that last one. The end of the period, you put in just one more tampon and that's the one that usually gets forgotten is that last one. Don't forget to remove your sea sponge either. I usually just tell people that tampons are optional. You don't have to. Um, I guess for sure yeah. that's a part of the message. But I and yeah. what I always say is it's a personal choice. 
Yeah. Some people wouldn't do without them and some people would never do them. So yeah, it's very um I have a lot of like parents who are like, why won't my child just use this particular intervention that I have always used for periods? And then children who are like, but mom, and I can't say I blame them because like said in a loving way, I truly don't care like what method a person uses. They're all optional as long as you do something that keeps you in school, frankly. And definitely don't forget your sea sponge. All right. All right. <laughs> On that note, don't forget your sea sponge. <laughs> <Yeah>. The, <laughs> the new tagline exactly. of the podcast. Don't forget your sea exactly. sponge. Signing exactly. off, Claire and Paula. <laughs> so, so don't forget the new book, Remarkably Bright Creatures by Shelby Van Pelt that we'll, we will talk about briefly at the beginning of our next podcast. Thank you for joining us on this podcast for the February issue, and we will be back. Thanks, everyone. Hi, this is Claire. If you would like to contact us, if you love the podcast, if you hate the podcast, if you have thoughts about the podcast or you just want to tell us something, maybe you want to be on the podcast and be interviewed, you can send us an email at jpagpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's jpagpodcast at gmail.com. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks for listening.